May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight we mark the seventh and final Sunday in Eastertide. Seems a long time since Lent drew to its close with our celebration of the resurrection. The lilies and the eggs and the bunnies that the wider culture associates with Easter are long gone. Yet the liturgical calendar still has us calling out our alleluias and proclaiming that Christ is risen. It's a 50-day season, running from Easter Day through to next week's celebration of the Feast of Pentecost. Maybe part of the force of that is to let us know that the 40 days of Lent have been trumped. This is our primary story We draw the season to a close by hearing the story of the Ascension, as told by Luke in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is really volume two of the gospel according to Luke. The gospel marks the movement from Bethlehem, the little city of no significance, to Jerusalem, which was the center of the Jewish world. And then Acts marks a movement from Jerusalem to Rome, the center of the known world. Luke ends his gospel with an account of the ascension of Christ, and then he opens the book of Acts with a slightly different variation of the same event. Clearly, Luke sees this as something of a hinge point in the midst of his larger story. In fact, of all the gospel writers, Luke alone attends to this particular event. Mark's urgent and clipped gospel ends with the women at the tomb experiencing the fact that there has been a resurrection, and then it ends. Matthew's gospel continues with some other material, but culminates with Jesus saying to the disciples, Now go, carry this good news to the very ends of the earth. In his typically poetic and freely speculative style, John more or less understands the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension as being one seamless movement. And so, in tonight's reading from John, on the very eve of his death, Jesus is already speaking of his being glorified. But for Luke... This moment of ascension seems crucially important to a deeper understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's funny, for several generations now of critical biblical scholarship, the account has been increasingly treated as merely symbolic or perhaps even mythical. It's an account that presumes a a three-tiered version of the cosmos, with the earth flat and above the heavens and below Sheol, or the place of the dead. And if that's your understanding of the way that the universe works, to picture Jesus ascending up toward the heavens works very well. But now that we know that the earth is a spinning globe and that up is relative to the vastness of the whole of the universe, well, at least some of the modern liberal voices have got very nervous about this story of ascension. 
And some have even begun to sound a little bit embarrassed by it. Yet, I think that's because they've lacked imagination, frankly. The question I would like to ask those who have been so str- struggled so much with this story is, how else might that company of Jesus' followers have experienced his going from them? I mean, Luke is describing a deeply mystical experience. That's an altogether different thing from mythical. A mystical experience is one in which one sees the way things truly are. They catch a glimpse of how things really are in their essence. And what they see that day is this image of their teacher, their mentor, the one they've now begun to recognize as their Lord, going from them to be united with God. Well, given their worldview, of course he ascends. It actually dovetails quite perfectly with John's insight that the death, resurrection, and ascension are one seamless whole. Of course he's returning to his source, to his Father, to his God. The power of death has been shattered. And in his resurrection, Jesus is so vibrantly and fully alive that the created world as we know it can barely contain him. As the New Testament scholar Matt Skinner emphasizes, Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God, and that's language in the book of Acts, his ascension to the right hand of God refers not so much to location, but to status. The right hand of God, says Skinner, is not a place, as if we could find Jesus and his Father sitting in a throne room somewhere or sharing a booth in a heavenly tavern. It's not like he had to keep going till he got somewhere. Their experience simply was of him being released from this world into oneness with God. And implicit in the whole Christian vision is that what happened to Jesus is what has been promised for us. Even though we die, and we all will die, death has been defeated already. When we read of the fully embodied, extraordinarily alive resurrection and ascension life of Jesus, the life that allowed him to simply be in the midst of his people without doors having to be opened, to not be recognized and then be recognized, to be for them this presence that was deeply life-giving and then released, all of those things in them we see a glimpse of our future In the words of the great Anglican theologian Oliver O'Donovan, all we can say is that the transition has occurred, that there is a beaten path that lies before us. It's an interesting image, right? That the path that Jesus has walked is a beaten path that lies before us, linking our physical existence to an existence in the presence of God which lies beyond its conditions. We cannot see the path. The cloud which hid Jesus on the mountaintop is a veil for that which cannot be comprehended from below. But we know that the path has been taken and that we are to take it too pretty powerful kind of a piece of proclamation 
that what we see in the resurrected and ascension life of Jesus as described by these gospelers in the only language they can use is actually promise for us. Well, that little group of followers who stood on the Mount of Olives could not yet fully anticipate the full meaning of any of that. They'd heard Jesus' promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, but they don't know what that is. They've shared this experience of his going forth from them, and they're now standing kind of slack-jawed, necks craned, looking up, wondering, what's next? When suddenly with them are two men in white robes. Now, the sudden appearance in the white robes are kind of a clue. These are messengers, angels, the Greek word angelos means messenger, who say to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? Seriously? Like, if you were there and you just had this experience, where would you be looking? Right? Of course they're looking up. And then the two figures add this. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right? Isn't that even more reason to be standing, kind of looking up and waiting? But maybe the force of it was this. Don't worry. When he returns, you won't be able to miss it. For now, get your heads out of the clouds. For all the wonder and the appeal of standing and staring into the heavens, you can't hang on to that experience. You might be able to describe it and write it down later, but you can't hang on to it. Get your heads out of the clouds, set your feet on the good earth, and start walking back to Jerusalem. The story isn't over yet, and you're a big part of it. And so they do. For the first time, those often thick-headed disciples finally get it right. When they entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Luke notes... It's not just the group of disciples. There's women there, again, significant. And his family has made peace with who and what he is. Had we read on through the rest of the chapter, we'd have heard that they didn't just sit around and pray either. There was more to those days than that, as important as that prayer would have been. They had one very practical matter to take care of. Jesus, at the beginning, had assembled a company of 12 disciples. A significant number in Judaism, considered the perfect number, also significant because of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet, with the defection of Judas Iscariot, there were now just 11 of them. So two good candidates were proposed to fill the 12th now empty seat. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. And while the process of selection between the two good candidates was enfolded in prayer, the final selection was left, as you might know, to the casting of lots. 
and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The casting of lots. Imagine. Dear Bishop Don, We've discerned that we're in need of an associate priest here at St. Benedict's table. And after proposing several good candidates, we gathered on Sunday night in the chapel. We drew straws, and the lot fell on... Hmm, who did it fall on? Please plan to have an ordination service here with us when you visit next Sunday night. Sincerely, Jamie. Now... To be fair, well, I can only imagine that I'd love, I, I should write Dawn actually that email tonight. <laughs> I can only imagine the response. And to be fair, as the church matured and found it, 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 its feet, uh, by the time of the writing of the first epistle to Timothy, it had done some really deep thinking about the kind of qualifications and qualities that it wanted in its identified leaders, its bishops, and its deacons. Yet in those very earliest of days, that that first, second, third chapter of the book of Acts, they were able to just hold their hands in a posture of absolute and utter openness. They were just those kinds of days. Well, in the timeline offered by Luke, there's 10 days between the ascension and the day of Pentecost, days in which this group learns some things about how to wait. It's really a kind of a little Advent season for them, these in-between days. As Matt Skinner writes in his comments on the passage, presumably the Holy Spirit could have come immediately after Jesus' ascension, but God waits. Rather, God has Jesus' followers wait. I like to think that in this waiting, they learn or begin to learn that they are to be a responsive community, a community that waits upon God to initiate. God has Jesus' followers wait so that they learn or begin to learn how to be responsive as a community. The delay the waiting, the in-between. This is what they most needed to do to prepare them to be that responsive and dynamic community that is the body of Christ. For a culture as restless as ours, a culture that finds delay oh so difficult and holds almost as a matter of creed, spend now, pay later, With interest, of course. There is much, very much to be learned from that posture of waiting. As that early church in those ten days, as they sought to figure out who and what they were, were challenged to simply be, may we in our own circles have the wisdom and the gift of simply being when time demands it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.